Let me read Psalm 29 for us. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendour of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest spare. And in his temple all cry, glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the floods. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. And may the Lord bless his people with peace. May we pray as we come to God's word. Our Father God, we pray that you would come to us and speak to us. We've just been reading how your voice is full of power and full of majesty. So as you open your word, would we hear you speak? Pray, convict our hearts where we need convicting and comfort us where we need comforting. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, Percy uh, Bysshe Shelley uh, wrote a poem called Ozymandias, which you might know. And in it, he, he talks about a traveller uh, who he meets. Uh, a traveller comes from a distant land, and he, in, in the distant land, in a desert, uh, he saw a statue. Uh, the statue was just two pairs of legs. Uh, and uh, the face of the statue is lying in the sand uh, next to the legs. And then, uh, alone on a pedestal, uh, the poet Percy Bysshe Shelley says, alone there, uh, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look at my works, ye mighty, and despair. And God says to us this morning, look at me, ye mighty, and worship. Verses 1 and 2, David, the psalmist's opening uh, statement, God's greatness demands our worship. God's greatness demands our worship. Children, if you... Oh, there's no children here. Okay. Oh, there you go. John, if you've seen Aladdin, adults as well, if you've seen Aladdin, uh, you'll, you'll know a scene where Aladdin has been turned into a prince to impress the girl that he loves. And uh, they come into uh, the city where Jasmine is, and the genie uh, sings a song. He sings, make way for Prince Ali. And he goes before Aladdin, proclaiming how great he is. The drums are rolling. The trumpets are blaring. And the beginning of this psalm really should have a similar feel to us. Ascribe to the Lord glory. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Proclaim how great he is. Uh, but who does he direct the command to? It's not to you and me on the surface at least, but to these heavenly beings, he says. Oh, heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory. Literally translated, that might be sons of God, uh, sons of might. Uh, I think it's a bit of a mystery exactly who he's referring to. But I suspect we, we can imagine angels in heaven, the greatest of the great. He, David aims his command to, to the highest level, if you like. 
He's saying, great as you are, O heavenly beings, your greatness is nothing compared to God. See how he describes God at the end. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Splendor of his holiness, a phrase that just indicates to us how the Lord is set apart from us. How how we can't touch him, even the greatest of the great, even the angelic beings in heaven. There's a distance between them and God, between the creatures and the creator. We measure greatness in millimeters, but God's greatness is measured in light years. Think of Isaiah chapter 6, which some of you all know, where Isaiah the prophet sees a vision. And in the vision, he sees the Lord high and lifted up, sitting on his throne. And seraphim, these great angels with six wings flying around, crying, holy, 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 is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the angels are covering their eyes with their wings and covering their feet with their wings because even as great as they are, great heavenly beings, their greatness is nothing compared to the glory and splendor of the Lord. David says in his opening statement, you who are considered the greatest, worship God. Even if you wear a crown upon your head, bow down before the Lord. We could filter down other levels, couldn't we? If the angels are being commanded to glorify God, and so are the emperors. Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar could go a level down from that. Kings and the princes, Henry VIII and Elizabeth II, down to the politicians. Joe Biden and Boris Johnson and Kim Jong-un. You can think of the greatest perhaps that we consider great, greatest in music or or art or academics or in sports. Those are the greatest prowess on the football field or on the rugby team. You go lower and lower and lower. Down to me, down to you, down to the ordinary citizen. If the angels, the great angels in heaven are called to glorify God, how much more are we, who are several levels lower than them, called to glorify God? I wonder how that leaves you feeling, particularly if you're a Christian this morning. I suspect it will leave most of us feeling, well, a little bit guilty, actually. I googled on the all-knowing Google how many thoughts we have a day, and apparently somewhere between 10,000 and 100,000, which is not very exact, but a lot of thoughts. How many, if you're a Christian, are spent upon God, let alone spent upon worshipping God? The truth is, none of us glorify God as we should. And a strange comfort in that, recognising that we are, we are sinners that fall short of the glory of God. That's why Christ's gospel is such good news to us, that when we come in Christ to glorify the Lord, uh, he is pleased of our worship. But it also means that we shouldn't be content to stay there. If our, if our glorifying of God is less than it should be, we shouldn't be content to stay there. And interestingly, this call... To the heavenly beings to ascribe glory to God. It feels a bit of a redundant call in some ways because the heavenly beings are already sinless. They already worship God exactly as they should worship God. They don't need to be called to do it. They're doing it already. It's for us to overhear and realize how much less we are and how much we need to be called to it. And what will lead us? Uh, what will lead us to, to, to join in their song in heaven? Well, it would be to see more and more 
how worthy God is to be worshipped. You see there in verse 2 where it says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. The irony of uh, the poem Ozymandias is that Ozymandias, this, this, this person who described himself as the king of kings uh, and told everyone to glorify him, has nothing left of his kingdom. But the poem goes on, nothing now remains, the, the lone and level that sand stretch uh, far away, his kingdom has crumbled to dust. He's not worthy uh, of the praise he demanded. But the opposite is true of the Lord our God. You can see at the end of the psalm, he is enthroned forever. How do I see, or should I say, how do I, better even, how, how do I hear God's glory more and more? Well, the psalm goes on to talk about the voice of the Lord. And what we need to do this morning, second point, what we need to do this morning is to recognise his voice. Recognize his voice. David wants to, David the psalmist wants to impress on us the glory of the Lord. And so he turns our attention to the Lord's voice. Just as it seems that David writes some of his psalms while looking out at creation. So he writes Psalm 8 while looking up at the stars. Or he writes Psalm 19, probably looking out at a rising sun. So here, he seems to be writing Psalm 29 in the aftermath of a tremendous storm, a a storm that he's really experienced. You see a storm there, verse 3, starts out out across on the waters, probably the Mediterranean Sea, and and then comes into Lebanon and Syrian, which are are north of Israel. And the storm then moves down through, sweeping through Israel to Gadesh, which is south of Israel, the wilderness which the Israelites wandered through on the way up to Canaan. It seems to be a real storm that has swept through the land of Israel. Storms, tremendous power. Just pick up some of the words in this passage. It breaks, it flashes, it strips, it shakes. What's interesting is David never mentions the storm, does he? He doesn't say the storm does anything. He says, the voice of the Lord does all these things. And we know, looking at it, it probably was a storm because it thunders and it strikes of lightning and it's, what else can break trees in this way? But David points to the voice of the Lord that does all these things. And so the challenge of, of Psalm 29 is, do you recognize his voice? Do you recognize his voice? Now, many of... Um, Many places in this psalm, we can hear the echo of the creation account in Genesis. So it starts out with the voice of the Lord, it's over the waters. And if you know your Bible at all, you know in Genesis 1 verse 2 that the scriptures start with the spirit of the Lord hovering over the waters. And then just the fact that it's the voice of the Lord does all these things. And again, if you know Genesis chapter 1, you'll know that the Lord speaks and makes creation out of nothing. And even the floods at the end of Psalm 29, described in verse 10, um, the word used there, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, so I don't actually know what the word is, only appears um, 40 time, 14 times in Scripture, and 13 of those times are in Genesis, describing Noah's floods. David is pointing us back to the creation account. And when we think of creation, we tend to think of what God has done. When we look at the world around us, we tend to think of God's handiwork, we see what he made at the start and left there. But David wants to press home to us 
that we need to see what God is doing, not only what he has done, but what he is doing, uh, that all that happens in the world around us is because the Lord is taking action, that he is an active God, not a passive God, to the extent that when I hear the thunder rolling in the sky, verse 3, I can think that is the God of glory thundering. Do you know whose world you live in? We live in a, in a very secular age that prefers to describe the world we live in using like natural causes, evaporation and condensation and all these things I don't know what I'm talking about, but scientific language, if you like, describing the world we live in. And that influences us, doesn't it? Influences the way we think of the world and teaches us to think in a particular way. Think of a, as an illustration, think of a boy who's only taught to type all his life. If he's only taught to type all his life on a computer. And then he's told he needs to learn how to write. The first time he tries to write, it's going to be a mess. It's going to be scribbles. It's going to be illegible. Just so, because we've been influenced by our culture, sometimes we're not good at hearing the Lord's voice in his creation. We haven't been taught to do it. We haven't practiced doing it. So there's a challenge. Do you recognize his voice? Have we, are we learning to set aside our cynicism given to us by the world? I recognize that God is active in his creation. But deeper than, than that, who am I recognizing here? Because it's more specific than, than just, just God or even more than just the Lord. The psalm could have been written, the Lord does all these things. The Lord is over the waters. The Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord makes the mountains skips. But it's not. It's the voice of the Lord. The voice of the Lord. And if we zoom back and take into context the wider scriptures, whether David knew it or not, then we have to see that we're speaking about the Lord Jesus here. If you're new to church, if you're visiting church maybe for the first time, this may feel like a strange thing to you. Uh, but in the Gospel of John, uh, where we are told of Jesus' life, and John begins his gospel by saying this, describing Jesus like this. He says that Jesus is the Word. And so the Word was God, the Word was with God. And he goes on to say the Word was present in creation, and God made creation through the Word. And just so we can say, the Word is present here, the voice of the Lord, God doing all things through Christ, through his Son. Do we recognize that? The, the Lord Jesus sits enthroned over this world because if we do if we recognize that then thirdly this morning we'll respond in humble worship we'll respond in humble worship when you hear his voice echoing in creation respond in humble worship we recognize the greatness of the lord our god and the greatness of his son respond in humble worship right back at the beginning of of the book of psalms psalm uh, chapter 2 psalm 2 um, God says there that I have set my king on Zion, on my holy hill. And he's speaking, of course, of the Lord Jesus. I've enthroned him and crowned him as king over all. And what is the wise thing to do, the psalm goes on to say, what is the wise thing to do before that king? What is a sensible way to respond to him? It goes on, verse 11 of Psalm 2. Now therefore, he says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling and kiss 
the Son. That is, humble yourselves in service and worship him. In this psalm, we see why that is the case. We see the majesty and the power of the voice of the Lord that calls us to humble worship. Throughout uh, the psalm, the Lord's voice, the Lord Jesus, uh, takes what we consider mighty, takes what we consider strong, takes what we consider powerful, and shows just how weak, how small, and how powerless it is compared to him. So verse 5, he takes the cedars of Lebanon, cedars in, in ancient times, and even today to some extent, are, are considered these, these symbols of might, and they still remain on the Lebanon flag. Uh, the woods in Israel's time would have been used as foundations for the temple, as foundations for palaces, and yet here the Lord takes them and snaps them like a toothpick. Uh, children, if you ever, ever got spaghetti in your hands, dry spaghetti, it hasn't been cooked yet, uh, you can break it really easy, can't you? That's what the Lord does with these mighty great trees. And he makes Lebanon and Syrian to skip. Uh, they are a mighty, well, Syrian is at least, a, a mighty mountain, ancient, old, and movable. And the Lord's voice comes and makes it dance like a young ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The lightning that we see in a storm comes from the Lord. So powerful is it that, that we have to guard ourselves with lightning rods in our houses to make sure it doesn't strike us. The Lord takes the wilderness of Kadesh. Kadesh, the wilderness below Israel, where the Israelites wandered for 40 years, where many of them died and suffered. A dark, a brutal place, a terrifying place. He takes it and picks it up and shakes it like a rag doll. This is the power of the Lord. He makes the deer, verse 9, give birth prematurely, so terrified is the day. And Tara courses through her body and makes her give birth early. Strips the forest bare. If you've ever seen footage of a hurricane, it's gone through a rainforest and even trees strewn left and right. So that's what the Lord's voice does. And in his temple, all cry glory, stunned by the majesty and the power of the Lord. There's nothing quite like a storm, is there? to humble us and to remind us of the lack of control we have even over our own lives, of our own limitations, of our own smallness. If you've seen The Sound of Music, you know, you know the scene where the children run terrified into Maria's bed. Why? Because the rain is pounding, and the thunder is rolling, and the lightning is striking, and they are afraid. Just so we should be humbled before the Lord our God and before his son, the Lord Jesus. The storm comes and it strips away our strength. It silences the thoughts of our self-sufficiency. It shakes our illusions of grandeur, reminds us how small we are and how powerful and great the Lord God is. And so lift my eyes to him who, who not only directs and controls, but breathes forth the storm and makes me cry glory glory to God so we worship him because he is worthy of it now what's interesting here though is that that's not where the psalm ends it would feel like a fitting end wouldn't it all in his temple cry glory David has just called them to glorify God and we reach verse 9 and we find everyone in the temple crying glory 
But there's verse 10 and 11, which tells us that David has another goal, uh, another purpose here. And it is this, that when we hear God's voice and respond in humble worship, we can then receive strength. That's the fourth thing this morning. Receive strength when you hear his voice. I suspect for many of us, particularly if you know this psalm well already, um, it may stick in the throat a little bit. It's a psalm describing uh, the awful nature of a tree-breaking, mountain-shaking storm. And, and the news is full of storms which have wreaked havoc across our world. And just recently in, in Germany, where the floods have set in, several hundred dead, leaving thousands without water, without electricity, without gas. And that would have been true to some extent, not the electricity and the gas, obviously, but true to some extent for Israel. This is a real storm that swept through them, they were left the land devastated. And yet David is penning this psalm in the aftermath of it. You have to ask, how is it that when I know the Lord reigns over that storm, it brings strength? Now, as, as British people, the worst we get usually is the rain we had this morning. Uh, we don't experience storms of this magnitude very often. But we do know what it's like to be struck, don't we? We do know what it's like to be shaken and stripped of things we hold dear. And yet, verse 10, the Lord sits enthroned over the floods. Again, pointing back to Noah's flood. You think of Noah's flood, that is the flood which caused untold devastation to the earth. That is the supreme example, if you like, of chaos and devastation. And that spells out for us that it is the Lord who sent the rains, who caused the floods. He says, literally in Genesis 6, verse 17, I will bring the floods of water to destroy all flesh. The Lord sat enthroned over that flood. Verse 10, and he sits enthroned as king forever. Now, today. And remember that we're speaking of the Lord Jesus here as well. It cannot be clearer, David is saying, that the Lord sits enthroned over all that sweeps into my life, wreaking devastation. Now, how can that bring me comfort? How can that bring me strength? For most Christians, that tends to leave them angry. It might tend to leave them despairing. It's perfectly true uh, that the psalm doesn't address the fact that in those times, we are perfectly entitled, and in fact, called to. God wants us to lament and to call out to him, why have you brought this on me. David isn't addressing the why here, is he? He's trying to help his Israelite people find strength in the storm. Strength of the Lord reigns. It's worth starting uh, by saying, first consider what this means it's not. If the Lord reigns, then what is it not? Well, it's not that the Israelites and we are in the hands of meaningless chaos when storms sweep into our life. In bleaker situation is to believe there is no God at all. And then to realise that all your pain and suffering means absolutely nothing. That your despair is meaningless. It means that we're not in the hands of some other random angry deity. That's what the Greeks would have said. You know, this is Zeus or the Vikings. This is Thor. 
So on the other hand, some mysterious or spiritual forces wreaking karma on us, because then the storm would be our fault. What's happened to us would be caused by us, and we have to figure out a way to get it to leave. But rather, I am in the hands of the Lord God. I'm in the hands of his son, the Lord Jesus. And that brings me strength and comfort to those who trust in him, to those who are, as verse 9 says, in his temple. How to do that? Well, it's because as Christians we know that this powerful word of God that dwells as king over all came down to dwell among us. That's what John goes on to say in John chapter 1, the word that through whom God created the world and reigns over the world became flesh. He didn't come down to terrify us and to tear us apart, but he came down to act to save us. Uh, to speak promises that strengthen and build us up. And it's worth saying those promises still come to us through the voice of the Lord, through God's words. We still hear Christ's voice speaking to us when we open the Scriptures. When we open your Bible, it's worth thinking of it as Christ himself coming and speaking to you. And sometimes he comes with a voice of thunder and lightning and power to strike and to shake but he also comes, doesn't he, to strengthen us and to lift us up and to sustain us in the storms we face because we know that he's come to rescue us. I know that Christ has given to me his great power to sustain me through the storm and to bring me out, verse 11, into a place of blessing, into a place of of peace, that he will ultimately draw me through. And that is the comfort when you know that the Lord reigns over the storm, knowing what he's come to do for us in Christ and the promises that he has made to us through the Lord Jesus. Let me pray. Father, we confess that we are often influenced by the world around us, that we are often not very good at hearing you in your world, at living in this world as if it is your world that you are active in and doing all that happens. And Father, there's, there's hard things there. Um, there are uh, tricky things, but there is great comfort for us in the Lord Jesus when we hear his voice. Comfort which brings us to worship him as our king over all and comfort that causes us to be strengthened and to trust in him. I pray that you'd give us some of that strength this week. In Jesus' name, amen.